Good morning. It's good to see everyone again this morning. So we continue with our Platform Sutra book study or exploration. And uh, we are continuing with uh, section 20. Uh, it's the second part of that section. So, what do we mean by the myriad fold transformation body? If we didn't think, our nature would be utterly empty. When we think, we transform ourselves. If we think evil thoughts, we turn into the occupants of hell. If we think good thoughts, we turn into the deities of heaven. Malice turns us into beasts. Compassion turns us into bodhisattvas. Wisdom transports us to higher realms, and ignorance sends us into the lower depths. Our nature is constantly transforming itself, but deluded people are unaware of this. Once we think of goodness, wisdom arises. One lamp can dispel a thousand years of darkness, and one thought of wisdom can end ten thousand years of ignorance. Do not think about what's past. Keep thinking about what's next. When your next thought is always good, this is what we call the realization body. One bad thought results in the destruction of a thousand years of good, th good ones. But one good thought results in the annihilation of thousand years of bad ones. In the face of impermanence, if your next thought is good, this is what we call the realization body. So I just want to stop for a few minutes here because this is a good way to shed light on the real meaning and significance of the term emptiness, which is often misunderstood. And this term is not referring to void or nihilistic state of being. And it is also not rejecting anything. Emptiness is better understood as no fixed position or non-dwelling, since there, in reality everything is constantly changing, whatever arises and vanishes naturally lacks an independent existence while it subsists. That includes our physical appearance, our feelings, and our thoughts. When we understand that all, all of it is constant changing, we, we are less likely to grasp or become attached to it. And we can also see the immense possibilities that are always available. In other words, we are not stuck. And he says, one bad thought results in the destruction of a thousand years of good ones, and one good thought results in the annihilation of a thousand years of bad ones. One lamp can dispel a thousand years of darkness, and one thought of wisdom can end ten thousand years of ignorance. So we create our own reality. So when we grasp negative or destructive thoughts or unwholesome thoughts and manifest them through our speech and actions, they will become static state of being and create destructive reality. And we'll feel annihilated within that vast emptiness. On the other hand, when we shed light or the light of wisdom and realize all things and people as interconnected, as not separated, Positive thoughts or wholesome thoughts will naturally arise and will be brand new and we will experience a dynamic reality that embraces everything. As we chant, 
This is the pure land. It's up to us to make it so, which is the same as saying this is the vast spaciousness. All directions are wide open within that spaciousness. And when we understand emptiness in this way, then we realize our great potential and our great responsibility. So it's a very important point to understand that emptiness in, in Buddhism means everything is possible. And everything is possible means we can create hell and we will experience hell because we create it. And what we experience is what we create. And at the same time, we could create heaven. We could create wholesome states of being, wholesome reality, wholesome societies. And that's what we will experience. So when, we, when negative thoughts or unwholesome thoughts arise in the mind, they just arise within the vast emptiness. The question is, are we going to string those thoughts together to something and then think that there is something there. We, cre we, we string them to a story. We create a story from that. We speak and act that story. And by speaking and acting the story, we create something, which then we try to get rid of. And all of it is happening within nothingness, within emptiness. And again, it doesn't mean that things are fixed, it means that things are possible. So whatever we create is what we experience. So let's just take a few moments to, it's a very important point that I think we, we need to, to look at for a few minutes. So let's take a few minutes and open it up and see if anybody has any comments on that, any questions, anything you would like to share or bring up in relation to our fixed state of mind or fixed stories in the mind. Any questions? I guess I have a question. Um, I missed last week, but um, this, this, in these practices, the discern, it, he's very, um, um, He's very blunt about good and bad thoughts. And I'm wondering about that, I suppose, because there's, mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think we kind of are assumed to know what bad is, but I was wondering if anyone had any, any, th any yeah. words about that, Roshi, if you did, about bad thoughts, you know, bad actions, bad deeds. This is, you know, our, our whole our whole society is based on what that means, at least on a physical or a material realm. But you know, right? Anyway, so, just it's important. So what he's talking about is is uh, wisdom and thoughts that arise from wisdom and that basically give us that sense of interconnectedness. So probably a better way to to uh, to say that is wholesome and un or to refer to that is wholesome and unwholesome. Right? So what is unwholesome creates divisions. Divisions do not exist because divisions, everything is interconnected. This is not an idea we have to buy into, but something we need to observe and realize. Reality is interconnected, right? So thoughts that are unwholesome are thoughts that arise out of a sense of 
disconnected or disconnection, right? Everything seems to be separated. Now, it's better to think of it this way because it's beyond what we think about right and wrong. Because what we think about right and wrong is also our own creation. So this is not talking about our own limited um, egoic ways of thinking about right and wrong. Right? Because the right and wrong that we, we speak of in our society arise from a sense of separation, not from a sense of unity. And this is talking about a sense of unity versus the, the delusion of separateness. That's why he uses the, the light of wisdom that shines forth. When the light of wisdom shines forth, or when we cultivate the right understanding, or, or probably better to turn towards the right understanding, then things appear as they are, which means interconnected, which means empty of or devoid of separate existence. So in, in that, with that understanding, taking care of others is the same as taking care of your toe. Why would you not take care of your toe, right? You don't need a, a book to tell you you should take care of your toe when, it, when, you get a, when you have a cut, right? You don't need anybody to tell you that. It's not, you don't need a precept that will say that. The problem is that we, don't, we, we, we uh, act from a sense of separation. And then there is something to protect. There's something to defend. There's something to fight or someone to fight. And that's what we need to transcend. So back to emptiness. Emptiness means interconnectedness. All things are one and therefore devoid of separate existence. Therefore, what we call I does not exist in the way we see it. It does, but not in the way we see it. Does that work? Okay, thank you. Yeah, go for it. Yoga. Um, I would think that this... Um or I, I like to I like to feel as if this uh, ties into doing things on purpose and knowing what your in energetic intention is in terms of good and bad. It's not a fixed um, it's not a fixed way or thing. Um, and we need to examine our intention. And whether our intention promotes goodness or promotes um, destruction, but not thinking either are bad or good. Right. Also, in terms of that uh, uh, discrimination, right? So, so the discriminating consciousness that we speak of, right? Discriminating consciousness is not a negative thing. It's the way we function. We, we have negative thoughts when we hear the word discrimination because of the way we use it, not because of what it is. If we did not have the ability to discriminate, to discern, how can we function? The problem is not with the, the, the ability to discriminate. The problem is that we use that in the wrong way. We have to see ourselves different because we're not the same. While we are the same, we appear differently. But appearing differently, we always manifest the same thing in different ways. And when we are blind to the fact that we are the same, then discrimination becomes negative. 
So it's not a negative thing. Uh, uh, the way we function within that is, is the problem. So, so now in terms of negative and positive, th the issue with, with arising thoughts is that it can create, if we don't know how to use it, how to meet it, it can, we can create a self from that, a fixed sense of self from that. So the example I gave a couple of times is when, when people uh, uh, test in Aikido, right? So they go through the test and maybe at some point through the test, they mess something up or they forget something and they, they don't perform the way they want to perform which is fine, it happens. Now, at that moment, sometimes people get caught up in that. It's like, oh my God, I, I messed up, I'm terrible, I should do better, you know, they're expecting of me something else and I'm not delivering, all that. That is, that is creating a sense of stuckness and then negative states of mind follow that. That is, a, at that moment, something is created. It, it's not, it doesn't come with that, so-called mistake, but we, when we look at that and, and fixate on that, then we create something from that and we create a negative state of being or state of mind that will follow. On the other hand, when we see it, oh yeah, I see that and I'm gonna pay more attention, that's it. Then we move from what can be static potentially to what is naturally dynamic. Then where do you find yourself? Nowhere. Are you good? Are you bad? Neither. Because it's not about good or bad, it's about flow. In the static, there is good or bad. In the flow, there's just a flow. There's no one there other than the flow. I can personally testify to that. Yeah, and I mean, this is just an example, right? So, so and it happens, I mean, it was just an example, but it happens in, in many other aspects of our lives. We mess up. Naturally, we mess up, of course. But, but it's not wrong. And also, there's nobody there who is wrong unless we take that, fixate on it, and create a person who is wrong. Because there is no person, there may be something to look at and, and change, but there is no wrong person until and unless we create a wrong person. Then there is. Because in that vast emptiness, we create whatever we want. Well, maybe, maybe want is not the right way to say that. We create whatever we create. But, but the, the point in that is 10,000 years of doing things wrong or, or creating wrongness or whatever we, we call it can end with one moment of realization. One split second of realization can end it. In other words, if you veer off 10 kilometers or 10 miles, you don't have to go back 10 miles to find your way because your way is always here. All you have to do is split second of recognition and there you are. But it doesn't mean it's going to uh, sustain itself or maintain that course. We have to keep doing it. We have to keep awakening on a momentary basis. Otherwise, we veer off again. So however stuck we feel, we can instantly become unstuck because we are unstuck, essentially, because the stuckness is the creation. Does that make sense? I see the Kakuo raised the hand. Go. 
Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of your Aikido example of, you know, somebody messes up and then thinks, oh no, I messed up. So that's such a, that's such an ingrained part of, you know, I think almost everybody's mind. I know for myself right. that, you know, those voices and those past conditionings are really, really powerful. So I'm, I'm not going to ever get rid of them. And then I notice when I work with students, you know, and students who are having social anxiety, low self-esteem, whatever it is they're having, they, they, like I said to them, oh, just realize your true nature right now. It's not going to, you know, it's like there's, there, there are forces at work that seem to be so much bigger. Like, let's talk about what's really going on, which is just people are just like, oh, shit, I messed up. Like, so many people just have that. That's like a big part of the human experience now. Yeah, also equally uh, actually greater forces of goodness, of wholesomeness. And as long as we don't trust those forces, we don't trust them. The potential may be there, right? But it, remained, it remains dormant, mm. right? So, yeah, we trust what we, we trust the familiar. And the familiar is often destructive. And we, yet we, we still trust it. It causes a lot of harm, great deal of harm, yet we still trust it. Why? Because again and again, we can identify with, we find ourselves there. And this is why the practice is, 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 is basically asking us to release the grip, right? To be okay with not knowing who we are. Because as long as we know who we are in that, well, of course, I'm the one who is acting this way. I'm the one who is bad. I'm the one who is messing up. I'm the one who is no good. I'm the one. But what if that is not there in the same way? What if, well, there is that to take care of. There is something to maybe rectify or work with or work on. But I am not the one. I'm not that. Right. It's just that there is a need for us to have identities as we go through life, especially, you know, when you see like other people outside of oneself, you know, when you see this, it's, I guess, yeah, it's so, not really a question, but I'm, I'm just wondering how to, you know, examine the reality of people with social anxiety and self-doubt and, and it's a deep part of life. Right. So look within Right, so so if, if if what what we're studying is already there, well, we have to turn turn it around, and instead of look out, and well, everybody's doing it, so I might as well do the same. Everybody thinks this yeah. way, so I have no choice. I gotta do the same or think the same way. We turn it around, and that's one. And the other thing is, this is why sangha is so important. You know, Huineng. One second, Mio. Uh, Huineng, where'd you go? Oh, you move around. Uh, Huineng is saying uh, you have to find a good friend or good friends, right? And he's not just talking about good buddies to have a beer with. He's talking about uh, Dharma friends or Dharma relationships, right? And, and, and being around people who also have some level of bodhicitta arising reminds us, reminds you where to look. So you're not looking and following unwholesomeness looking at unwholesomeness and following that, right? You look within, you look at others that mirror to you who you are before the mind moves, before you think of good and bad. Yeah. In other words, be careful who you're hanging out with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Myogen, go ahead. 
just really quick because I saw that Enkai raised her hand too. Uh-huh. Um, I just bouncing off what uh, Kaguo had said. Um, you know, in in terms of how do you how do you deal with that social anxiety and everything, and it, it, it getting it it's it's getting worse and stuff like that. It's it's really I I think you know because our society is built to set up another to compete with the other and when we don't meet that standard that we've made up then um we see the other as the other just just a thought right so 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 in terms of what is wholesome as in whole is looking at the other and seeing yourself looking at yourself and seeing the other right so who are you i am everybody I am everybody is, is more accurate than I am this fixed thing. I'm everybody and everybody is changing. So who am I? Uh, Enkai and Yozen after that. Yeah. <clears throat> when, um, when Kako is, you know, bringing up this point, um, maybe uh, the first thing that came to mind for me was like, well, what are you protecting? And that's what you were speaking about is like this fixed identity. So that when we go like, oh, I messed up, what are you protecting in that moment? And, uh, you know, and I know, you know, the student, I actually got to a level with a, a particular student where um, they're one of our strongest students, very, very skilled, hardworking, um, talented and creative, but they lack certain confidence where, um, one time I said to the, this person, you know, you, uh, it was shyness. I can't remember what the word was. It's shyness or something like that. Um, I was like, it's actually quite, we, we were, I was able to say this to them. It's actually quite selfish. Uh, cause you know, because what are you protecting? And they were like blown away. Like what? Uh, and, but yeah, like, what are we protecting? Right. Um, right. Right. You're talking about in school, a student in school. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so listening to you guys, I think about, uh, you know, the place where I've been thinking a lot about is this like moments of alignment. So it's talking about oneness or whatever, but not just the otherness, but also that sense of self otherness that mm-hmm. happens. So when our actions, thoughts, or deeds don't live up to what we have defined as that perfect version of self. Right those moments where shame, you know, experience that kind of creates that crossroads. Shame in and of itself may not be bad, but what do we do with it? And how do we experience it as a moment for wisdom? Or are we holding on to, um, like Inkai was saying, that sense of self of I'm the one that did that, as opposed to I am this now, and I am all or whatever. So Right, and and this is this is the the transformation. This is the you know, the expansion that we talk we often talk about, right? So to see it, but not to do anything with it or about it, allows us to transform. It's just that we we become very reactive, right? So so when thoughts like this appear, there is a very there is a personal sense there. There is something about it's not just a thought. It's a thought that is about me. Right, and I don't want to become that, so I'm gonna retaliate. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna run away. I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna react to it. But what if we don't react to it, right? And this is what we're talking about. So, so Kako, what if you don't react to that? What if thoughts like this appear in your mind, 
and, and you just allow it because you realize again and again, all of it is floating within this vast emptiness. I don't have to react to it. So I'm going to shift my attention to the, the larger, to the wholesome, to the interconnected, right? And, it, and it, is, it is a form of training. You know, we speak of Zen as a form of training. It's not just tell somebody, don't worry about it. You're all one with everybody, right? It doesn't work this way. It takes diligence. It takes practice, right? Again and again and again. And when we practice on a regular basis, something changes. We realize something. So, anyone else before we move on? Did I miss a hand? Hey. Uh, L? L, yes, L. The windows, Hi, the windows shift around sometimes and you go from one place to another. So, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um... I'm just wondering, um, we're talking a lot about othering ourselves and I'm wondering how we connect, um, you know, reacting to like thinking that we're not enough or inadequate by expanding our idea of ourselves, how we connect that to, um, like when we see someone else in our community doing something that we don't like. So recently um, in another group that I'm in that also has a Discord server, um, someone said uh, a lot of like very hurtful things to someone else and then deleted all their messages. So um, for me, from where I'm sitting, I know something bad was said, but a lot of people in the community don't know what it was or the specifics. So when I was, I noticed when I was kind of talking to other people in the group being like, what happened? Did you see what happened? Um, a lot of the conversations are about, is this, like this, is this person bad? How bad are they? Are they bad? Are they good? Do they belong anymore? Um, and I found myself really struggling in these conversations because I felt like I had a rising feeling that was kind of like, I always knew that person was bad news. But I also felt a call towards like maintaining compassion in that. Like something one of the people in the group said was like, our friend so-and-so has like, does these things that are really, um, can be like upsetting to be on the receiving end of and maybe should be avoided if you can't, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking about what we're saying in the context of other people mm -hmm. too. Right. So, so, uh, thoughts or so words and actions may need to be addressed, right? So we hear something, we see something, we may need to address it, which is, which is by itself not a problem. The issue arises when we create a per, an, another from that, from those words and actions, and my, the self as the one who is reacting to those self, to, to the other self or to the words and actions. Right. So, so, so the question for us is, how can we uh, do what we need to do, right? Care for it uh, and uh, take actions without creating a self, without creating the other, right? In other words, can we do that? Can we, can we take care of, of business and do what we need to do without creating self and other? Mm 
Mm. It's not that things don't need attention. Yeah, things do need attention. And sometimes we need to speak up, right? And say something to someone, right? Mm -hmm. But it's because harm is being, can be caused, is being caused, right? Uh, mm. Or created. But, but we have to watch. Am I creating the one who is right and the other who is wrong? That's the problem. Or, or, or that's the beginning of a potential problem, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be watchful. So, yeah. Anyway, we're going to... Oh, one more. Sagioko, go ahead. So, <clears throat> when we're lucky enough, or when our practice works, and we are able to do that, and be in that kind of uh, mind position when we're addressing some uh, action of someone else that's we perceive as causing harm, that was kind of convoluted, but anyhow, um, and I think it makes it more likely and more possible that that other person will change. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, the other person is changing even when we don't see it. But I mean that other person will be able to shift towards more wholesome behavior. Yes, because that's what, you, right, because and, the, and what we were saying before about reminding each other that they were not fixed. Because we're not making them bad. Yes. Oh, right, exactly. When I'm right, so so when we don't make somebody something, then we, in a way, give them the freedom to to shift. Yeah. When we make them something, we, in a way, we almost stop them. Right? We don't encourage them to shift because we tell them, "Here, I know who you are, and I know what you're not. So therefore, you're not going to be what I don't see you as being." Or possible in your case. But how do we know that? Right? Anyone else? Raisan, speak. <laughs> Hi. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, the, the tension seems to be for me between being responsible on the one hand and being therefore a center of uh, praise and blame on the other. And if we can um, see ourselves as centers of responsibility, like an Indra's met, but we're all connected and therefore all responsible. And yet at the same time, realize that we are not centers of praise and blame um, because we are in the net and the, there's as many forces on us as we are forces on others. And then what we were just saying about how we look at others, um, which I think is very much connected with how we look at ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we look at others as not centers of praise and blame, so that when we look at them or comment on them, we see them as centers of responsibility, right? You are doing such and such, and it's having this sort of a result. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be doing that or not? Not that you know, you're an idiot for doing that. Uh, and the same thing towards ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I'm doing this and it seems to be having this result and that doesn't seem to be helping me very much. I should see how I can 
um, have some kind of a different sort of a reaction uh, or relationship to the environment. Mm. But getting praise and blame out of the equation, and particularly, um, I mean, one of my main um, issues is often self-righteousness. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's all about praise and blame when, you know, just externalizing what should be um, gotten rid of internally. Mm -hmm. uh, I shouldn't be rewarded for something, therefore I shouldn't be rewarding or blaming somebody outside of it. So having that sense of responsibility, yet at the same time, getting rid of the, the praise and blame, which our whole culture puts together so tightly that right, right. Uh, it's very, very hard to do. Um, but I think that's the, uh, the, um, the separation that we need to practice. And I think the more we can practice it with others, the more it'll come back home to us and we can see ourselves um, being separated from those. Right. You know, the issue is actually with identification, with praise and blame, right? Because, you know, we, we do need to be able to discern, right? Uh, to discriminate in, in a way that is conducive. So for example, saying to a kid, good job for doing something, we should not avoid saying good job, but, but we should understand what it means. And we should maybe talk about that, right? It's not about good versus bad, right? Because we all, we all stand up, we all fall down, we all make a mess, we can all clean up. So it's not about the action. I mean, we should see, be able to see the action, respond to that or comment on that without creating a fixed sense of self, self or other, right? So if somebody does something that we call, that we consider good, we can rejoice in that. It's not, damn, this person succeeded and I failed, right? It's, it's all of us. When somebody succeeds, we all succeed. When somebody falls down, we all fall down, right? So, Vimalakirti, because everybody is sick, I am sick, right? It's the same with that. So, it's not, it's not good or bad. It's, it's the way we use it that makes it, because we use praise and blame as a way to separate this versus that. But this is another state of being which comes, and that is another state of being that comes out of the same vast emptiness, this and that are not two, right? So we can comment, yeah, there's this, and then, and then we say there's that, but not as two. The problem is the duality, right? So, yeah. yeah. I think to bring it back to Hui Neng, um, it's all like, this is what he probably means with don't think about what's past, keep thinking about what's next. And the, like, we did this for the last 20 minutes. We were, I was sort of activated by the good and bad. We all had a conversation about good, bad, and wholesome, all wholesome, and actually bringing them back to, you, you know, a oneness. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we'll do it over and over and over again. We'll keep making this mistake I think you know and he'll say and this is why Huneng is saying just notice it and come back to come back to oneness come back to wholesomeness yeah Which, and you know you what know, that's the best next step and non-dwelling is wholesomeness do not dwell or dwelling nowhere this is why dwelling nowhere raises the body mind the awakened mind an awakened mind is a mind that does not dwell 
An awakened mind is not, does not create a person. Because an awakened mind is aligned with reality, which is constantly changing. So, again, you don't find yourself there. And as long as we're okay with not knowing who we are, we are in alignment. The second we insist of knowing who we are, good or bad, then we step outside of that flow. And then we are deluded. Or that is how delusion is born. So, yeah, non-dwelling. So with that, we move on. Uh, so just to continue that the, thought that, the thoughts that come from the Dharma body are your transformation body. And when every thought is good, this is your realization body. When you yourself become aware of this, and when you yourself cultivate this, this is called taking refuge. Your material body is made of flesh and bones. Your material body is but an inn and not a fit place for, of refuge. Just become aware of your three bodies and you will understand what is truly important. And then in the commentary, Bill Porter says, In as simple a manner as possible, Huineng reveals his insight into the most profound mystery, the mystery of our ever-changing, always-present thoughts. This is what we take refuge in, not in a, not in a statue or in an altar or, the, or, or a memory of someone who died centuries ago, or some mythic ideal, but in the thought bodies present in our own material body. Or in a way, we, we can see the nothingness within the somethingness. In fact, our material body is part of the three, is part of all three these bodies. Our thoughts arise, it turns out, from the Dharma body, including the thought that we have a material body. And as they arise, they become our transformation body. And when every thought is good, they form our realization body. Right? And again and again, it, it's, it's that recognizing the tendency to fixate, the tendency to create, the tendency to dwell. And then as soon as we recognize it, move from dwelling to non-dwelling. Without measuring how much have I dwelt, how much am I not dwelling? Nobody is measuring because we can't measure. Immeasurable means immeasurable. So even the tendency to measure is something we have to release or something we have to let go of. It's immeasurable. Although it looks for us, for, from where we're standing as if we can measure it, but this is the, 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 uh, the idea of or, or the, uh, the example of uh, holding a ruler against the sky and saying, well, I see five inches between this cloud and that cloud. It doesn't mean anything. But for me, it means that there are five inches between this cloud and that cloud, and I must be here. The five inches are made up, and there's nothing there in the cloud also, although it seems as if there is something there. So we have to, in a way, intercept, interrupt all these uh, uh, the dwelling mechanisms within us and keep moving. Rather than look back, look forward. Rather than look at what's static, look at what's dynamic. How do we see what's dynamic? We don't. We can't. Because seeing what's 
even saying I am seeing what's dynamic is creating a static that is not dynamic, who is watching what is dynamic. So the seeing dynamic is the being dynamic. We cannot see, we cannot think about it, we cannot do anything with it, but we experience it. So, uh, moving on to uh, the, the Bodhisattva vows. This is 21. Good friends, having, having taken, refuge, taken refuge in the three-bodied Buddha, let us now make four boundless vows. Good friends, recite after me. Now, this is something that we have to uh, dive into again and again, although we chant it on a regular basis. The fact that we chant it, sometimes the fact that we chant something on a regular basis can be to our detriment, right? We do it again and again, and we think we got it. We think we know what it means. We think, I got it, I like it, I don't like it. I'm just going to go ahead and do it because it's something we do. It's part of the tradition. And there is a danger there. So we have to chant it every time as if never before. Right? That's one. And the other thing is we have to chant it with an open mind that can continue to understand and learn and deepen with every chant, every word, again and again. So he says, I vow to save all beings, no matter how numberless. I vow to end all afflictions, no matter how countless. I vow to master all teachings, no matter how limitless. I vow to attain Buddhahood no matter how transcendent. It is phrased a little differently than the way we have it in our tradition. It's the same thing. Now recite this three times. Good friends, as for I vow to save all beings, no matter how numberless, it isn't Hui Neng's who does the saving. Good friends, every being you can think of saves themselves with their own nature in their own body. But also with that, being everybody or, or expanding to, to the understanding that we are everyone, saving oneself is saving everyone. When we sit down to meditate, the whole world sits down, sits down to meditate. There is no one a part of that. So when we sit down to meditate, we sit down with everybody and everything throughout space and time. And, and we have to also watch out not to make a cliche out of that because that's one of our many tendencies. What does it mean they save themselves with their own nature? The wrong view and afflictions, the ignorance and delusions in their own material bodies already possess the nature of original enlightenment. It is just this nature of original enlightenment that saves them with right views. Once they realize the plajna wisdom of right views, they dispel their ignorance and delusions, and each being saves themselves. The false are saved with truth. The deluded are saved with awareness. The ignorant are saved with wisdom. The bad are saved with goodness. And the afflicted are saved with enlightenment. Those who are saved like this are truly saved. As for I vow to end all afflictions, no matter how countless, this means to get rid of the delusions of 
your own mind. And I vow to master all teachings, no matter how limitless, means to study the true, unexcelled Dharma. And I vow to attain Buddhahood, no matter how transcendent, means always to practice with humility, to respect all beings, to avoid attachments, to give rise to prajna from your own awareness, and to put an end to delusions. It is through self-realization that Buddhahood is attained. This is the power of making vows. Now, to see uh, another thing here, which is kind of we touched on before, to see the Buddha in oneself is to see the Buddha in another. Because if we if it doesn't mean that, or if it doesn't uh, feel that, or we don't experience that, then we're really not experiencing our own Buddhahood. Because if to truly experience Buddhahood is to understand interconnectedness. Right? So if when we experience the Buddha within, we see it in another, regardless of how the other behaves. Right? It's not that, well, this person behaves in, neg- in bad ways, therefore, there's no Buddha there. That's not truly understanding. So, again, Buddha sees a Buddha, or seeing from the Buddha eye, we can see through the delusion of the other. So even when the other is blind to their own Buddhahood, we can see from our Buddha eye their Buddhahood. And then by doing so, as Sagyoku was saying before, by doing so, we can help them awaken to what's already inherent in them because we are communicate, communicating with them with what is already inherent in us, which is the same. Does that make sense? Any thoughts, questions about that? So is it confusing or is it clear but sounds challenging to practice? Clear but challenging to practice, I would say. Okay. But is it encouraging? Maybe that's a better question. Mm I think, um, I remember we talked a couple weeks ago about like the Buddha and Macy's the Buddha. And so I've been thinking about that. And I, I think it's like, um, as I've tried to apply that in my life, it is kind of like the place where I'm like, huh, is like, it makes me, it made me realize, I guess that I have an idea of what the Buddha is in me and what it is in other people. So when I first started practicing it, I was like, I don't know, there was like a feeling of like openness and love and compassion that I assumed I would be maintaining for people, everyone that I met basically in practicing that. And it hasn't quite looked like that. And I wonder, I guess it's making me wonder if the Buddha always looks like, um, or like, yeah, what the Buddha actually looks like or what I think it is. Well, what we mean by that is, as we said before, not fixed, right? It is constantly changing. So it doesn't look like anything. Therefore, it can look like anyone. You see, the point is, it doesn't have a fixed appearance. Nothing does. 
nothing has a fixed appearance, therefore it can show up in any way. Right? If, if we create an idea of it in the mind, then it's something versus something else, which is not it. And that's what we have to cut through. Right. And not only the uh, Buddhahood of human beings, of other human beings, but also of all things, all insentient things, even the, the pebble underneath your foot that supports you as you walk, um, that it's all there. All one means all one. Right? All one means well, all one means there is nothing or, or that is not it. There is no one that does not have it because it's not about having or not. It's not about you cannot lose it. One is one. So I'm going to, I want to, uh, if, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, yeah, just, it reminds me of this idea of projection, you know, in psychology. And I feel like there's a way in which all human beings are projecting the whole world all the time. But what I find is I, I know this and I know that, you know, if I'm following my Buddha nature, then I will see everything as Buddha, but I, I can't control the, um, it's like the weather changes, you know, if I'm tired, grumpy, hungry, whatever, like I have a stomach ache or so, suddenly the other person is, is not Buddha anymore because I happen to have a headache today. So like when that happens, I see it. I know that's what's going on. I'm projecting my own whatever, but it's very hard to change it in the moment. Uh, well, not really uh, easy or difficult, but because what there is a headache, there is a headache, but the headache is changing. There is that, right? Don't sit on it. Don't fixate on it, right? And that's the advice. This is what the practice is asking us to do. Experience, but don't create anything. Don't create parameters. Don't create mm -hmm. self and other from that. And also take responsibility for that, right? So, so right. grumpiness, yeah, there is grumpiness. But you know what? When you realize the, the preciousness, the preciousness that is not covered by the grumpiness, right? Then, then there, you, you, uh, you can operate from a different place in you. Your grumpiness, however grumpy you feel, it cannot cover it up. Oh. It cannot cover it up, right? So there is the experience or there are the experiences, but there is something that always shines forth. Mm. Always shines forth. So. I, I want to... I want to say that it's, and it's not like when you're grumpy, you can just act as if you're not grumpy. Like, it's not like, okay, I know I feel this way, but I'm just going to act as if I'm not because that's Buddha way. Like I'm hungry, but I'm just going to act as if I was perfectly full, but it, it is, it's just, it's not your everything. No. Right. It's uh right. So, so we, we should uh, be careful to not, contract right because and that's what happens we contract and we see reality uh for, from a pinhole basically through a pinhole right and through that pinhole or actually sometimes it is said that we look at reality from through a pipe right and we look at reality through a pipe. well obviously we got our view is going to be very limited right this is my view and everybody have that walks around with their own pipe and sees a different reality 
right? And that pipe may, may shrink even further when we feel grumpy, right? Also, it expands and shrinks, but still a pipe. So when we let it go and expand and experience reality, then something changes or we feel that something is changing, right? So hold your thoughts. I want to, uh, we're going to continue talking. I want to go to uh, uh, Bill Porter's commentary on this. And then we're going to continue. Buddhists throughout the world chant these four vows every day to remind themselves of their own commitment to follow the same path all Buddhas follow. Having taken refuge in ourselves, we need something to motivate our practice. This is where the power of vows come in. We make vows when faced with difficult tasks or when something is dear to our hearts. The union of marriage is based upon the exchange of vows. Making vow has much more powerful consequences than simply deciding to do something or not to do something. So by vowing to save all beings, we create the same realization body created by all Buddhas. By vowing to end all afflictions, we end our attachment to our material body, just as all Buddhas have freed themselves of theirs. By vowing to master all teachings, we produce the transformation body, just as all Buddhas have done in their own efforts to transmit the teachings to others. And by vowing to attain Buddhahood, we, end, we end our separation from our Buddha, from our Dharma body, which is the original nature of all beings, not only of Buddhas. And the, the point here is when we are about to chant, we need to put everything aside for that time, for the time of the chanting and truly, completely give ourselves to that. Right? Not just go through the motions. Otherwise, what's the difference between this and doing something else? Right? We, we keep doing what we're doing and then we go through the motions pretending we're doing something, but we're really not. Right? The whole point of that, as he's saying, is to remind ourselves, to remind ourselves of who we are. Right? Because essentially we are taking refuge in ourselves. Not what we think about ourselves, but in our true self. And it, it's, a big, it's a big ask, right? We, and this is what we are asking of ourselves. Do not reduce yourself to a concept. Because what we think about ourselves, this is how we reduce ourselves to a concept. Following along with, to, along with the thoughts that we, we have accumulated or, this, or, or the thought that create the story of me, this is how we create a tiny, small sphere of me and a small sphere of others. So the four vows. How do you feel about that? I think Kelly wanted to say something. Just to um, follow what was discussed earlier, I, I think the Buddha has, has belly aches, has stomach aches. The Buddha has the toothache, or you know, sometimes you know, here or there, right? Um, Buddha can experience joy. Buddha can, Buddha experiences pain, um, and allows it, allows it, um, accepts it. I've been, you know, really working on this uh, the last week or two, um, 
uh, you know, and I think we all have our moments where we're like, or we reject the pain or we reject, we want to kill the experience in one way or another. Um, right. And if we can relax into the, I don't know, into the pain, it's, it's, it's so difficult to do, but I, I think the, the four vows and, and this reason, this conversation today help to remind us that like, that's exactly where Buddha or Buddha nature is, is, is in, is in the challenging experiences, especially sometimes. So, I mean, not to yeah. make one thing, you know, bigger than another, but um, I don't know. I think it's a very fruitful conversation. Kakul and Al. Right. Also to, to not think that's wrong. Right, because you know the idea of, of a Buddha is an idea, and then when we feel something, it it seems as if this is this is not going along with something. It the only thing it's not going along with is the idea that we have in the head. That's it. Reality is fine, right? But when reality and the idea collide, we have a problem. Right? I don't want to feel this way. I don't want you to, to act this way. Why? Because I have idea and you should obey my idea. That's it. I mean, it, this is how ridiculous we are. I have to say it. Because we are. It's very painful. I mean, our ridiculousness results in a lot of suffering. But we are utterly ridiculous. Even defensiveness is pointless. What is it? What is it that we are defending? Do we ever stop and think, "What the hell? What, what am I? What am I fighting for?" I took on a job. It doesn't pay anything, <laughs> but I am going to fiercely with my life defend this. Why? What if I don't defend it? What if I don't defend my sense of self? So, so what if I work for others instead of for the self, right? Or another way to see that, what if I understand that working for the self, or truly working for the self, is working at the, at the service of others? That's how we work on the self. So working for others, doing good for others, is doing good for the self, the true self. So it's all radical. We, we get it. It's all radical because it goes against the grain. It goes against the way we think. But we don't care about that, right? Because, you know, we, we get it. We understand that it is, there is resistance within and we just keep going. So, before we move on, anything else? Any other thoughts, questions? And uh, just want to tell, sometimes, I, you know, you may raise a hand, whether it's the yellow hand that comes up or your physical hand, uh, which is not different. Um, I may not be able to see that. So if somebody else uh, sees that, please let me know. Okay? So it's not that I'm ignoring anyone. Okay, so we move on. 22. Good friends, having made the four boundless vows, let me now 
recite for you the formless repentances that destroy your karmic barriers of the past, the present, and the future. Then he said, good friends, may past, present, and future thoughts, may thought after thought not be corrupted by delusion. May my bad practices of the past all be gone, and may they be gone from my nature. Such is my repentance. May past, present, and future thoughts, may thought after thought not be corrupted by ignorance. May my deceitful thoughts of the past be gone, and may they never occur again. Such is the repentance of my nature. May past, present, and future thoughts, may thoughts after, thought after thought not be corrupted by envy. May my envious thoughts of the past be gone, and may they be gone from my nature. Such is my repentance. Now recite this three times. Good friends, what does repentance mean? Repentance means to be aware of past misdeeds and not to commit them again for the rest of your life. Unless bad practices are forever removed from your mind, reciting this before Buddhas won't help you. In this Dharma teaching of mine, repentance means to stop once and for all. Now, the once and for all for the rest of your life doesn't mean more than this moment. Right? So we should always keep that in mind. That, you know, when we talk about the rest of my life, we're not talking about more than today. Just today, right? And, and I think that when we, when we see it that way, well, it's, not, it's never more than that, but when we see it that way or even say it that way, it can become more doable. So, so it does, and, and connecting that to what we talked about before, 10,000 years of doing bad things or acting in ways that are unwholesome can end right now. Right now. With one thought. Or vice versa. And then there's a line here in the comment. Unless we free ourselves from the, of the past, we can never free ourselves of the future. And unless we free ourselves of the future, we can never free ourselves of the present. And, and repentance, you know, is really talking about taking full responsibility for our actions and their consequences. As in the, in the five remembrances, as we chant, right? I am of the nature to die, and everything I love is also of the nature to perish. My actions are my true belonging, and I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. I cannot escape that. Today, am I taking full responsibility, right? So when we take full responsibility for our actions, we can intercept the course of our karma and begin to move in a different trajectory, which will naturally create an environment that is less likely to cause harm. Right? But if, I, if thoughts appear and I create something of that and I feel really bad, I feel really bad about that, then I'm creating something that will maintain the course of the, traje or the trajectory of my karma and naturally will cause more harm. And I will exhaust myself. And it's not going to lead to anything good. So, now, with that, you know, during Jukai ceremony, so in terms of taking precepts or vows, right, 
during the Christ ceremony and Fusatsu, we vow to take refuge in the three treasures. And although we, we study them as an expression of our true being, making such a vow can seem as if we are taking refuge or taking on something that has to do with a foreign tradition, right? So now I have to go along with that, right? Which we need to, uh, we need to look at. We need to examine, is it, do I see it as something I need to learn to assimilate in my life or do I understand because if I see it that way, then it may appear as an extra burden I have to take on. But in reality, taking refuge in three treasures means shedding all the extras we have accumulated, but only today, and taking refuge in being who we truly are. So it's not a foreign tradition that we have to buy into or believe. Now I am a Buddhist. That's an idea. No more than any idea that we have in our heads before we think we become a Buddhist. There is nothing there. There's no ist, right? Because you cannot become who you originally are. And it's more about stop becoming so you can be. Stop looking, stop defending what you think you are. Because as long as we defend what we think we are, we cannot be who we are. It's actually as simple as that. So to examine our, our desire to, be, to, to defend, our um, continuous reactivities, reactivities to our own feelings, thoughts and feelings, and reactivities to other people's uh, sayings or actions. All those reactivities are showing us or teaching us something, right? It is showing me what I'm vested in. I'm vested in that person or that idea of a person who doesn't like this and likes that, who thinks this or doesn't think that. So we can talk a lot about reactivities and, and... But what's important is that we examine on a daily basis, momentary basis, we examine our knee-jerk reactivities that we go along with. So do we see the connection between our daily moment-by-moment challenges of living, being, and, and, and the teachings of winning? I see some heads nodding. Okay, Dion, go for it. What do you have in mind? <laughs> this is all hitting home. Good morning, everyone. Um, I keep coming back to the defending who we think we are. Um, today, uh, <laughs> I'm of the understanding that Um, When I wake up every day, it is a new day. And I am someone who in the past would have a difficult time leaving home. And I told Roshi this um, earlier, but uh, I would create a bubble around myself because I I would feel uncomfortable um, with people staring at me because of my skin condition. And I was already in defense mode when I left the house. I didn't know that. (laughs) But I would create this bubble around myself because I had anxiety about 
interacting with folks on a daily basis. It's exhausting. It was so exhausting. But um, at this point today, um, I've been letting go of the bubble. And pretty much what's happening is I'm encountering more conversations and connections with people. <laughs> it was pretty funny because I did a lot of talking before, but it was outside of my body. It was, it was the, the act of um, ignoring my skin condition. That's what I did myself to in, interact with people before. But now it's like people are just coming out of the woodwork like, hey, what's going on? Did you get a tooth pulled? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's this. It's 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 a scarring issue, and you know, and it's opening my my world up, and it's allowing me because I sat on my art for so many years because I was so embarrassed about how I looked, but that's not happening anymore because I'm making more connections. I'm finding that interconnectedness mm-hmm. by allowing myself to just be and it's really interesting um yeah i'm not really um relying on my family because i used to use them as crutch when we would go out in public i would use them to say see i'm not hideous there's people that love me (laughs) now i can tell my family no i'm going to go to a function or an event by myself because i can do it i'm 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 good you guys can stay home. You don't have to protect me. That, that's the mindset I'm at right now. But I realized that um, by denying my human nature, I was, con- I was killing the connection that I could make with people over the years. So that's where I'm at today. This is just, it's all fitting. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that's where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for the sharing. It's also very encouraging, right? So to see that when we look within, when we look beyond, we realize beyond our ability to see, right, with the eyes, right? And then we can transcend so much, right? And then naturally so much beauty just comes out because it's there. In a way, it wants to come out. We stifle it, right? We keep it at home. We keep it closed in. Right? And, and we protect something. We protect an idea and the idea is covering it. The idea is of, of a self is covering the beauty of the true self. Right? It's the idea that's the problem. The true self is, is perfectly fine all the time. Right? And, then, and, then, and this is our responsibility to allow it to shine forth. To let it. So, yeah. Thank you. It's definitely it's a good story you know to 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 share because it's it's it shows how we can shift from uh being uh, uh stuck to being to feeling liberated and 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 it's a and it's a tribute to your own practice right you know it is due to your own practice to your own sitting down and taking a look what's going on here what's really going on here So thank you. So it's one thing I was saying before that the practice can seem like a burden, but but the burden really is the conceptual self that we insist on carrying around wherever we go. And unless we devote time and energy to practice, chances are we will not be able to see that. 
So when we don't see that, we blame the practice or a practice for being too much, for being too demanding, for being a burden. But that's not what we, are, what we, what we need to practice. This is just another concept that we create. So, yeah, when we maintain a when we talk about maintaining a practice, we are actually talking about ma uh, maintaining the path of liberation, so we can see that essentially we are trapping ourselves. So, what could be better than that? It's incredible. Any other comments? Okay. So the next section, Huineng refers to the three treasures. I think he's doing it in a refreshing way that is, is different from uh, traditional texts and it can help us understand it uh, more intimately. This is 23. Good friends, now that I, we have finished uh, with repentance, I will transmit to you the formless precepts of the Triple Refuge. He said, good friends, we take refuge in enlightenment and the best of two-legged creatures. We take refuge in truth and the best of what transcends desire. We take refuge in purity and the best of congregations. Beginning today, call the Buddha your teacher. Never again take refuge in the mistaken teacher, teachings of other paths. And may you experience the compassion of your own three treasures, your own three treasures. Good friends, I urge you all to take refuge in the three treasures of your own nature, wherein Buddha means enlightenment, Dharma means truth, and Sangha means purity. Take refuge in the enlightenment of your own minds, those whose delusions do not arise, who have few desires and who know contentment, who are free from the wealth, of wealth and sex, they are called the best of two-legged creatures. Now, two-legged, uh, this also means legs of wisdom and virtue on which the Buddha stands and walks, right? So this is another way to understand ourselves beyond the limited way we see ourselves. We are an expression of wisdom, which means we have a great responsibility. It's not just me walking around. It's wisdom manifesting through me. Right? It's not the small way of seeing oneself. So to take refuge means to see you in the larger sense. You as all things. So take refuge in, in, in the truth of your own minds. When your thoughts are free from delusion, you are therefore free from attachment. And freedom from attachment is called the best of what transcends desire. Take refuge in the purity of your own minds, no matter how many afflictions and delusions are present in your nature. Because your nature remains uncorrupted at all times. This is called the best of congregations. So this is Sangha. Ordinary people don't understand this. Day after day, they recite the precepts of the Triple Refuge, but when they say they have taken refuge in the Buddha, 
Where is the Buddha? If they don't see the Buddha, they aren't taking refuge in anything. Right? So we say that, we recite that. But if we don't see our own, or the Buddha in our own body, our own material body, then it's no more than just saying words. And if they aren't taking refuge in anything, their words are false. Good friends, each of you should examine this for yourself. Don't misdirect your attention. The sutras only say to take refuge in the Buddha of yourselves. They don't say to take refuge in some other Buddha. If you don't take refuge in your own nature, there is no other place of refuge. So, and this is, again and again, something we have to turn towards, right? You know, to watch how we create something of practice out of the three treasures and to understand that this is false, right? So when we talk about the Sangha or when we talk about you know, showing up to participate, whether it's a, you know, sun, Sunday morning or other seats or in-person practice, which we will resume again um, next month. So when we don't show up, there is that, and I, I've said it before, there is the sense of, well, I'm just going to do what I'm doing and the Sangha will keep going. That's not quite true. Because there is no Sangha a part of me, because I am the Sangha. Right? So if we think of a Sangha in the same way we think of everything else, then our practice will, be, will not progress. It will be stifled, because we will we'll create a practice that is the same as everything else we do. And everything we do is compartmentalized in such a way that prevents us from growing. This is why we compartmentalize. So we don't have to give up the self. I like this. I'm going to go do that. Then I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to go and show up and, and sit with everybody. That's how we see everything. Right? Everything is based on likes and dislikes. And the likes and dislikes do a great job sustaining and nurturing the delusion of separate existence. And that's what makes practice appear as a burden to the self. Of course it's a burden. Because I'd rather do something else. Because it doesn't work for me today. And I'm not saying it to, to, to judge. This is not a, a judgment or criticism. Right? It's not about one person. Because sometimes I say things, whether it's in, in studies or, or tejos, and people say, you probably talked about me. No, I'm talking about all of us. The response or the reactivity, thinking, oh, you probably talked about me, is showing us what we need to transcend. So if I become defensive, well, great. I can look at that and examine, or I can retaliate, which will only, not only sustain, it will nurture the sense of separation and alienation. It is, it is incredible how true the practice is and also how we realize that enormity of it the more we practice. So the more I practice personally, the more I realize this. I'm not done. There is no done. 
It grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes more and more expansive. So, any comments? Enka, good morning again. Hey, um, I th the last part of this section that says, uh, if you don't take refuge in your own nature, there's no other place of refuge. And what arose regarding that was, um, wow, that takes some great faith that this is the place to find it um, or to, to realize it. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I could expand on, but it would probably just be on that. So it takes trust. It takes going beyond something, right? It takes uh, patience, right? Also, we need to examine how the self manifests, right? The separate sense of existence. How does it show up? How does it, what, what kind of stance does it take in my life, right? In, in my experiences, right? And we need to examine, why am I saying what I'm saying? Or why am I not saying something? Is it about protecting something? So am I saying it in the service of a self? Am I avoiding saying in the service of a self? Am I saying it so others think I am great? Or am I avoiding saying so others don't think I'm stupid? There's a lot, there are so many opportunities in our everyday life, so many to, to go deeper and deeper with this practice. It's not about just, okay, sit in Zazen and check a box, you're done for the day. No. Keep, act, keep working on it moment by moment. Look at the thoughts. Look at the words. Look at the way you, look at the reactivities that arise in you, in us, moment by moment. There's no end to how much we can practice. So yes, it takes all that. Thank you, Enkai. Anyone else? Yes, Kelly. Um, it reminds me, Enkai, of something that Roshi said to me once in a dokusan um, that I think you had read in a book or a novel. It said, we were essentially born on the wrong sides of our eyes. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, it's all, it's, I, I know I have a tendency to like look around, look around, find some truth in the external, some find something outside of myself to hold on to um, or to, to reach for. And I think that's what he means with desire as well, like extinguishing that desire. But um, it's startling to have to turn back again and again towards yourself. So I, I, I it's refreshing the way when I write about it, but it is, it's, it's a bit, it's a, it's a lot <laughs> to hold because like, it's all, it's even all of us. So, you know, it's a lot to hold, but you know, seeing oneself is actually enabling us to love everyone beyond what we it's going to be conditional because it's going to be based on what we think. It's going to be based on feelings. 
So to see ourselves beyond our own thoughts and feelings is to be able to love others beyond their thoughts and feelings or beyond our thoughts and feelings about them. That's the only way to transcend. We need to transcend ourselves. We are the obstacle. Or we are the, the, the disease and the medicine. Or the medicine is and the disease are within us. Why? Because it's vast and empty space. All of it is within that vast and empty space. Uh, Pixie, good morning. Hi. So I'm. Um, this is this is all very eye opening, but it's kind of. I have to say, it's intimidating. Um, because making practice a part of every day, every minute is intimidating to somebody who's a novice. I guess it's intimidating to some of you who are not novices, also. Yeah, thank you for that. That's why it it, uh, it is. Uh, Consider the path of a warrior because it takes courage, right? And this is why one of the many uh, uh, aspects of having a Sangha is to provide that, to provide support and encouragement. So to practice alone without a Sangha can be very challenging. This is why we, we do what we do. Why we keep it together, we remind each other. So it is intimidating to that in us that feels fearful, that wants to protect and defend something, right? But, you know, in reality, it's actually the other way around. It's more challenging to sustain a separate sense of existence and keep defending it than to relax and let it go and to be supported by life. We wake up every, and we don't have to make a big deal out of that, right? Wake up every morning, open our eyes, right? So the day shows up to encourage, to support, to say good morning, how are you doing today, right? Every, life shows up at that moment with all, with all its beauty. Yet we get out of bed and then the mind starts working and then I got to do this. I don't know about that. I, I did not finish something from yesterday. I'm not sure what he or, or, or she will think about me today. All those things fill our minds, right? And then this is where our attention goes. And life can become very challenging, right? And we are trying to sustain and support something. Meanwhile, we are being sustained and supported by life. We are trying to hold it in our hands or put it in our on our shoulders. But that's too much. We are constantly supported. And when we look within, we realize, well, yeah, that's me. I am everything. I don't have to carry anything on my shoulders. And then it just happens this way. It is magical. But it takes perseverance, it takes discipline, courage. Of course, all those things are there. Yet what we're talking about is already there right now. So, stick with it. And, and turn to the Sangha for, for support, for encouragement. There's plenty of it. Thank you. 
Okay, I think we have a couple more and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, let me see. Uh, who raised the hand? Uh, El and Enkai. Hi. You know, it's, it's amazing how much courage and perseverance are needed to learn or to be simply nurturing and compassionate towards oneself. I think with the practice and committing to it every day, um, thinking about Jukai and things that we've talked about, what we're really committing to is taking refuge. And um, so we're committing to, a big part of what we're committing to at least is just taking care of ourselves and being kind and uh, creating, um, creating that space and maintaining that home for the heart. Exactly. So it's not so bad. And <laughs> I, you know, and I'm so grateful to have the Sangha to help me with that. Um, the other day I was walking around and thinking to myself something like, I wish I didn't have such poverty of mind so that I wouldn't feel so intimidated by other people and act out of fearfulness. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish I didn't feel like I was such a small person. And then today as we're talking, you know, I realize I'm like, oh, all it takes, you know, I don't, I'm not such a small person and I don't really have to, I don't really have that much to fear as I think that I do. And so instead of feeling bad that I'm not practicing in some external way, all it takes is realizing. Thank you. Thank you. Enkai? Um, yeah. Uh, as far as the practice, you know, coming off the cushion and being kind of every, every moment, um, I don't know. I, the Tenzo or the kitchen has been like the place where I've started to see that especially because I got to interview the head Tenza, the head chef at the monastery and ask him, what does it mean for uh, practice, for the Tenzo to be practiced? Because uh, the chef, for anyone who doesn't know, the, the person who cooks at the monastery doesn't get to meditate as much during session. Um, and so they have to make Tenzo work their, their meditation um, period. And uh, so I got to ask those questions, which I, I'm going to edit up that stuff and I'll, in a few months, you'll, uh, it'll be available. I'm going to share that with y'all. But um, as far as uh, Junior Roshi saying about um, Sangha, uh, also getting to come in person, which obviously this Zoom platform is amazing, and getting to hear each other speak is great in these in these discussions, and learning from other Sangha members how they talk about things and, and sharing their experiences. But then also when we have, when we get to sit in person, um, you know, on Sundays or, or Zazen Kais or getting to go to session. Uh, anyone, many of y'all, most of y'all have been in session together. Um, there's some, there's also something about the unspoken because you're not speaking, um, all of the nonverbal ways in which we learn from each other. We, we're just observing everything around us and picking up so much so that this idea of practice coming off the cushion, you just see it happening. So it makes a lot more sense when you then do it because you're just around it, so absorbing that from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and your Sangha is amazing. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. And yes, it will be great to resume in-person practice. And uh, we're going to maintain, of course, Zoom with that, but uh, it'll, it'll make a big difference. And uh, I just want to end with, with one thing about that. 
<clears throat> so transcending the self, the small I, the small self, and working on living an awakened life needs to become the most important thing in our lives. Not as something a part of other things I do, but because I care about everything I do and everybody in my life. And I think that this is, a, this is still a challenge for many practitioners, right? We, we, we have to be able to see that the, that the practice is about everything, not a part of everything. So I, I, may, I may talk more about it in, in uh, some upcoming shows, but, uh, but it is important to make the connection, to break down all the barriers that we have created in the mind, including the barriers to the practice. They're only in the mind. So awakening or living an awakened life needs to become the most important thing in our lives. Otherwise, it's not going to work. We are that. We are not going to be able to see it and actualize it. And that's a shame. So anyway, to be continued, thank you.